Ave Maria, gracia plena, Today is the 31st of March in the year of our salvation, 2008. And now that the octave of Easter is completed, yesterday, today we can celebrate the Feast of the Annunciation. And this is Father Z with another podcast. Today we welcome back St. Pope Leo the Great, who died in 461. We will hear the sermon, which in part is presented for lauds of this great feast of the Annunciation, in the traditional Breviarium Romanum. And at the end, we will also have some of your voicemail. Today we are going to hear some of sermon number 22. It's the second Christmas sermon. It's presented in a little excerpt in Lauds in the old Breviarium Romanum, which, of course, since Summorum Pontificum, that great gift of Benedict XVI to the whole church, uh, we have now no doubt that priests can use uh, to fulfill their obligation to pray the office. Now, last year, for this feast day, I gave you an excerpt from the second reading of the Office of Readings in the Post-Conciliar Liturgy of the Hours, and I urge you to go back and listen to that podcast. Uh, it's a stunning selection from his letter on Flavianum. You really should listen to it in conjunction with what we're going to hear today. But today, we have Sermon 22, and I'm going to give you the whole thing, at least in English, and then a little bit of Latin with it because we really can't ever listen to Leo without hearing part of his Latin. And uh, we, it shouldn't actually surprise us at all that we have a Christmas sermon for the Annunciation, uh, because, of course, this is the great day we celebrate, when we celebrate that instant when the Word became flesh and began to dwell among us. He comes into the light of this world at Christmas, but this is the moment when Gabriel comes to Mary, when she conceives, that's when, that's the very instant when our God in his divinity takes up 
our humanity into an indestructible bond and nothing is the same ever again that is the very instant that we refer to as the fullness of time and so it's proper that we have uh, this uh, a connection between Christmas and the Annunciation of course the 25th of March is when we usually celebrate it it's exactly nine months from the uh, from the Christmas from the 25th of December so today we have uh, Leo's sermon number 22. It's the second of the Christmas sermons. We have a bunch of his Christmas sermons. We have sermons from the years 440 to 444 and then from 450 to 454. So we've got a gap there of a few years. And uh, we lose some of the very the ones toward the end of his life too. And Leo nearly uh, always stresses uh, in his sermons the importance of the Incarnation because he understands that almost every heresy stems from a lack of understanding of the incarnation that christ has two natures and one divine person and this is something as a matter of fact he expresses with perfect clarity in sermon number 28 when he said practically no one has gone astray who did not disbelieve the reality of two natures in christ while at the same time acknowledging a single person so, throughout the course of his pontificate, Leo emphasizes the correct doctrine of Christ's two natures in his one divine person in order to combat various errors uh, still present in Rome and, of course, abroad. There are all sorts of different problems uh, still in the ancient church to try to figure out just exactly who Christ is uh, in his person. Who is he? Uh, part of the difficulty in those days was the technical language that people were developing in different places, both in Latin and Greek, to describe concepts like nature and person. There were very fluid terms at and people were not understanding each other all the time, even though they were kind of talking across each other. And of course, some of them were just getting it wrong, too, but the terminology was part of the difficulty. So what Leo does in this time of developing terms is he repeats Catholic teaching as he understands it, uh, and he repeats it in many different ways from different angles in order to make it clear what he is thinking and what people should believe and Leo wasn't really being very speculative here he wasn't terribly original as a theologian a lot of his thought depends on St. Augustine and uh, but he is able to make a huge impact on the question because he was Bishop of Rome everyone wanted to hear what he had to say and of course he said it with a Latin eloquence that I don't think has ever been surpassed. So the sermon we're going to hear was preached on Christmas of 441, and it's come down to us in two different versions. Versions called recensiones, recensions, sometimes called A and B, or Alpha and Beta. And recension Beta is probably Leo's own revision of the original sermon that he delivered and he added bits to it and cut some out, just as people do when they revise. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of tiptoe through both redactions, uh, cutting in some of, cutting out parts of the other uh, to make it a little coherent and also to keep it a little shorter. But I get the essence of uh, what he's driving at. And there are some things that I want you to listen to. Um, listen for as we go along. 
Uh, first, keep your ears tuned to how, at the beginning, how Leo stresses that the Incarnation was foreshadowed before it happened, and then also that its annual observance makes the very mystery present to those who are celebrating it as if it were a contemporary event. It's something really important for us to understand when we celebrate the divine sacred mysteries. Also, uh, listen to how Pope Leo affirms strict justice, that man really did deserve to perish because of sin, but because of God's mercy and his love, we have a different fate. Then, listen to how he sets up uh, throughout pairs of concepts like thesis and antithesis, opposites paired together, because he needs to make a point uh, about how God works and sometimes just one term or one explanation isn't enough. We have to look at it both from two different points of view or several different points of view in order to start to drill into the mystery. Listen also to how Leo will explain uh, how Christ is of course consubstantial with God the Father but he's also consubstantial with his mother he takes his na our nature from his mother he doesn't use the word consubstantial in connection with Mary but uh, that's what he's actually teaching and we also we always have to think of Christ as being consubstantial with his father and consubstantial with his mother otherwise we're not saved if we don't have a human nature if Christ didn't have a human nature taken from his mother then then what isn't taken up wasn't saved as it, as the father said notice also uh, toward the end the very sharp language that Leo reserves for uh, people who have been tricked into error about Christ's two natures in one divine person and he really really uh, has harsh words about the Manichaeans that's really kind of who he's aiming at in here both both pagans and Manichaeans uh, also you'll hear how Leo underscores what makes Christianity so very different from other religions uh, and that is our belief that God created everything from nothing this is the creatio ex nihilo uh, he, this is very different from what uh, other ancient philosophies have, the Neoplatonists or Stoics or Pythagoreans, so forth. That creation of everything from nothing sets Christianity apart from every other religion. And so, um, keep in mind that uh, these words that we were talking about, the sun and the moon and the stars and everything at the very end, uh, that there was a uh, Manichaean and pagan communities still there in Rome. As a matter of fact, Augustine uh, had sought out that strong Manichaean community uh, when he first arrived in Italy, only about 50 years before or so. He was trying to find entry into high society and meet some people, and so he sought out the Manichaeans because Augustine had been a Manichaean. And Leo is still dealing with those heretics, and they were strongly dualistic. They believed in principles of light and darkness. There was a different good principle and a different evil principle. And they were all about releasing light and so forth. They didn't even... They, they tried to eat light-colored vegetables, for example, so that they could release light back to the source of light. I mean, it's really pretty bizarre stuff. But Leo's anti-Manichaean theology... Uh, can be traced very uh, very closely in his Christmas sermons, and it can actually be found still 
uh, in the magnificent mosaics of the triumphal arch in the Basilica of St. Mary Major in Rome. Uh, Leo was the archdeacon of Pope Sixtus who made the thing, and Pope Sixtus tasked Leo with the making of those mosaics, and so he designed them with a certain theology in mind, and it was a very anti-Manichaean theology. Well, I'm digressing now, but let's hear what Pope Leo has to say in his second Christmas sermon, Sermon 22, especially uh, keeping in mind those little bullet points that I just gave you. Exultemus in Domino Dilectissimi et Spiritali Iucunditate Letemur, quia in luxit dies redemptionis noe, preparationis antique, felicitatis eterne. Reparatur enim nobis salutis nostre anno a revolutione sacramentum, ab initio promissum, in fine reditum, sine fine mansurum. In quo dignums nos sursum erectis cordibus divinum adorari mysterium, ut quod magno dei munere agitur, magnis ecclesiae gaudis celebretur. Deus enim omnipotens et clemens, cuius natura bonitas, cuius voluntas potentia, cuius opus misericordiast, statemut nos diabolica malignitas veneno sue mortificavit invidie, predestinata renovandis mortalibus pietatis sue remedia interipsa mundi primordia presignavit, denunciant serpenti futurum semen mulieris cognoxi capidis elationum sua virtute contereret, let us exult in the Lord, dearly beloved, and let us be gladdened with spiritual delight. For a day of new redemption has dawned for us, a day prepared from antiquity, a day of eternal blessedness. Made present to us on its anniversary is the mystery of salvation, promised from the beginning, fulfilled in the end, to remain without end. It is fitting for us to adore the divine mystery in this with hearts raised upwards, so that what God accomplishes through a great gift, the church might celebrate with great rejoicing. No sooner had the devil's malice put us to death with the poison of his envy than the almighty and merciful God immediately foreshadowed the remedy of his care. God, whose nature is goodness, whose will is power, whose work is mercy, foreshadowed a remedy predestined at the very beginning of the world for the restoration of humanity. He announced to the serpent that the seed of a woman would, through his power, crush the arrogance of its poisonous head, meaning Christ, of course, God and man in flesh. Born of a virgin, he would condemn with his undefiled birth that polluter of the human race. For the devil was gloating over the fact that human beings, deceived by his craft, went without the divine gifts, and that, with the endowment of immortality stripped off, they were subject to the harsh sentence of death. He reveled in having found a certain comfort among his own evils, from his companionship with the one who had gone astray. 
he also relished the fact that God, at the demands of strict justice, had changed his assessment of human beings, whom he had created in such honor. As a result, dearly beloved, it was necessary, by the designs of a secret plan, for the immutable God, whose will cannot be severed from his goodness, to complete by a deeper mystery the first intentions of his love. It was necessary that human beings, tricked into sin by the devil's wickedness, should not perish in opposition to God's plan. When that time came, dearly beloved, which had been prearranged for the redemption of humanity, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, comes into these nether regions of the world, descending from his heavenly throne, yet without leaving his Father's glory. He was brought forth in an unusual manner, through a new kind of birth. He was brought forth in an unusual manner, because, though invisible in his own nature, he has been made visible in ours, because, though incomprehensible, he willed to be comprehended, because, though already existing before time, he came into being at a certain point in time, because the Lord of the universe, drawing a cloud over the dignity of his majesty, took on the form of a servant, and because God, though incapable of suffering, did not think it beneath himself to suffer as a man, and to subject himself to the laws of death as a mortal. He was brought forth in a new kind of birth, because Mary's untouched virginity did not know concupiscence of the flesh, but provided its substance. It was nature that was assumed from the Lord's mother, not guilt, Created was the form of the servant without the condition of servitude. In such a way was the new man distilled from the old, that he took on himself the full essence of the race while shutting out the defect of that oldness. How truthful is the mercy of God! There were many means available to him in a mysterious fashion for restoring the human race, Yet he chose this way, in particular, for seeing to it. He would not use the force of power to destroy the devil's work, but the reasonableness of justice. It was not unjust for the pride of this ancient enemy to arrogate for himself a tyrannical rule over all people, nor was that dominion unwarranted beneath which he crushed them. After all, he had induced them to come over of their own accord from the law of God to obeying his will. In all justice, the slavery of this race could not rightly be taken away from him once it had surrendered, unless the very race which he had brought into subjection should overcome him. Accordingly, the merciful and omnipotent Savior controlled the process through which he first took on human nature in such a way as to veil under our weakness the divinity that was inseparable from his humanity. As a result, the shrewdness of that complacent enemy had been circumvented. He thought the birth of this boy, begotten for the salvation of the human race, 
to be no less subject to himself than that of anyone else who happens to be born. For the devil saw him whimper and cry. He saw him wrapped in swaddling clothes, presented for circumcision, and fulfilling the obligation of sacrifice according to the law. He noticed, in addition, the usual growth of boyhood, and right up through manhood did not have any doubts about natural developments. In spite of all this, he inflicted outrages, multiplied injuries, brought curses, insults, blasphemies, and reproaches against him. In short, he poured out onto him all the violence of his rage, exhausted every kind of trial. Knowing the poison that he had injected into human nature, in no way did he believe him free from original sin, since he had ascertained his mortality from so many indications of it. Consequently, this wicked plunderer and greedy collector held out against someone who of himself had done nothing by way of rebellion. In following up on the presumption of a corrupt origin, he uproots the decree upon which he was relying. He exacts a penalty for iniquity from him, someone in whom he did not find any fault. As a result, the ill-advising document of that death treaty gets revoked. That strong one becomes tied up in his own chains. Once the prince of this world had been bound, the fetters of captivity are removed. Purged from the ancient contagion, nature returns to its dignity. Death is dispelled by death, birth restored by birth. All at once, redemption takes away slavery, regeneration changes the beginning, and faith justifies the sinner. Whoever of you, therefore, takes pride with devotion and faith in the name of Christian, ponder by an accurate judgment the grace of this reconciliation. To you once cast aside, to you driven out from the thrones of paradise, to you dying from long exile, to you scattered into dust and ashes, who had no longer any hope of living, to you has power been given through the incarnation of the word. With it you can return from far away to your Maker, can recognize your Father, can become free from slavery, can be made again a child rather than an outsider. With this power, you who were born of flesh that is subject to decay can be born again from the Spirit of God, and can obtain through grace what you do not have through nature. If you acknowledge yourself to be a child of God through the Spirit of adoption, you may dare to claim God as your Father. Absolved from the guilt of a bad conscience, you may sigh for the heavenly kingdoms. Supported by divine aid, you can do the will of God. You can imitate the angels above the earth. You can feed on the strength of an immortal substance. You can struggle with assurance on behalf of devotion against temptations of the enemy. If you keep the vows of a heavenly soldier... You do not have to doubt that you will be crowned for your victory 
in the triumphal camp of the eternal king, when the resurrection prepared for the just receives you to be promoted into fellowship in the heavenly kingdom. Since we have the confidence of so great a hope, dearly beloved, remain steadfast in the faith where you have been grounded, lest that same tempter, whose domination Christ has now lifted from you, should lead you astray once more with any of his traps, lest he should ruin these joys of today with the cleverness of his trickery. He makes sport of the more naive souls through the pernicious conviction of those for whom this day of our celebration seems honorable not so much for the birth of Christ as for the rising of the new, as they say, sun. Their hearts have been enshrouded with empty darkness, entirely cut off from any entry of true light. They are still dragged along by the most foolish errors of paganism, because they cannot raise the focus of their minds beyond what they see through the eyes of flesh, they revere with honor due to God the lights that serve as instruments for this world. Far from Christian souls should be this wicked superstition and prodigious lie. Temporal things should be kept separate beyond all measure from the eternal, corporeal from the incorporeal, subordinate things from their master. Although these things have a beauty that is to be admired, they have no divinity that can be adored. That power, therefore, that wisdom, that majesty, must be worshipped which created the universe from nothing. He brought forth earthly and heavenly substance with his all-powerful ordering into whatever shapes and sizes he wished. May the sun, the moon, and the stars be well suited for those using them, beautiful for those looking at them, but only so that their charms might be referred from them back to their Maker. Let God who made them be adored, not the creature who serves him. Praise the Lord God, therefore, dearly beloved, in all his works and judgments. May there be in you an unwavering belief in the virgin's integrity through childbearing. Honor the sacred and divine mystery of human restoration with holy and genuine service. Embrace Christ, born in our flesh, so that we may deserve to see the same God of glory reigning in his majesty, who with the Father and with the Holy Spirit remains in the unity of divinity forever and ever. Amen. Laudati Jesus Dominum Deum Dilectissimi in omnibus operibus eius atque iudicis. Sit in vobis indubitata credulitas virgine integritatis et partus. Reformationis humane sacrum divinumque mysterium sancto ac sincero honorate servicio amplectimini Christum in nostra carne nascentem ut eumdem deum gloriae videre meriardini, in sua maestate regnantem, qui cum Patre cum Spiritu Santo manet in unitate deitatis, in secula seculorum. Amen.
That was St. Pope Leo the Great in a Christmas sermon of 441, which we very properly listened to on the Feast of the Annunciation. And it's used in part for lauds in the Breviarium Romanum for this great feast day. have to say to me. Here is some of your voicemail sent to me through Skype, through my Skype phone numbers in both the UK and in the USA. Hi Father Z, I hope you're having a blessed Holy Week, and I had just a general question that maybe if time permits, I know you're a very busy man, that you might be able to answer. The question is about with uh, Post-Vatican II, minor orders and whatnot, they're just instituted acolytes and lectors. And how do you see that maybe playing out in the future with an increase of what would be also known as the uh, Tridentine Mass or whatnot? And how in the Solemn Mass will they be able to have the person in the figure of the subdeacon be active and there should there not be extra deacons or priests able to celebrate for whatever reason and uh, if you reply at some time on your website thanks and god bless and if not i thank you anyway you have a great site happy easter minor orders yeah good question uh first of all i don't think they're going to increase with the older form i don't think the minor orders are going to be revived uh one way or another whether you think it's a good idea i just don't think it's going to happen but uh, clearly, uh, priests and deacons are able to fill the positions of deacon and subdeacon in the older form of Mass even today, just as they did before. I mean, we're seeing it all the time. We're seeing even uh, men like uh, Cardinal uh, Dario Castrian Hoyos uh, doing this when he pontificates. And if the head of the uh, Pontifical Commission Ecclesia Day is doing this, well, that's a fairly good indication that it's okay to do. I suspect that this is one of those things that we may have to see a clarification from officially from the Pontifical Commission Ecclesia Day, or perhaps it will be in the Holy Father's upcoming uh, clarificatory letter that is going to be released, hopefully fairly soon. Uh, I thought it was going to come out uh, right around or right after Easter, but uh, we'll see what happens. Um, I think we have to remember too that the present ministry of acolyte uh, was intended to replace the roles that the subdeacon had, and that acolytes can even be called subdeacons, according to Pope Paul VI's document Ministeria Quaedam. 1972, that's the one that dealt with minor orders and tonsure and so forth. Uh, personally, I think I would rather uh, see in uh, high masses uh, men that are um, actually ordained as deacons or instituted as acolytes to fulfill the role of deacon and subdeacon. 
but I have absolutely no objection that priests fill the role too, or that they be both deacons or whatever. Uh, it all is going to depend on availability and know-how. Uh, but one advantage to having the younger guys fill these roles uh, who are still in training or uh, maybe they're transitional deacons and they haven't come to uh, be ordained priests yet is that um, it reinforces in them the the knowledge of how to do certain things and encourages them to take part and not wait until they're priests uh, provided that they're aren't going to experience any blowback from the faculties at their seminaries or from their bishops. I think they still have to be prudent. Um, the climate hasn't changed entirely yet, but I, I'd really like to see, you know, if there's a deacon who could be the deacon and maybe an instituted acolyte uh, to be the subdeacon. And of course, you know, if uh, there are men in these uh, religious uh, institutes and orders that have uh, gone through uh, the minor order ceremonies um, then then they should probably uh, you know be given a shot of course that's something that that has been done all along in those groups so I think we have to have a lot of flexibility here but I don't think we're going to be seeing a return to the minor orders because of this uh, one way or another hi father um, my name is Carl Bunderson I'm a parishioner in the Diocese of Denver and um, I just had a couple of comments for you um, well, I really like your blog, first of all. I've definitely enjoyed reading it in the past few weeks. Um, I don't know if you watch um, Threshold of Hope on EWTN, but I thought of you the other night when it was on because uh, Father Mitch Pacwa was talking about how we need to learn from other traditions and from the uh, uh, Eastern Orthodox. He said that we need to l learn that liturgy isn't a hootenanny, which I just thought was something that you would appreciate. And also, I don't know, I, I haven't seen you address this in your blog at all, but it's just been something that's been kind of on my mind the past week or so. Um, how much you talk about how the Novus Ordo and uh, traditional Latin Mass are the same rite, or Benedict has seen them as the same rite. Is the Anglican use also the same rite? I understand it that it is. So is there a possibility that traditionally Novus Ordo priest, if they were trained in celebrating an Anglican use Mass, that they could also, in fact, celebrate an Anglican use Mass. Um, if you could just, I don't know, if you have any knowledge of that, if you would address it sometime in your blog, that would be really interesting to me and I hope to other people. So I hope that you are well and having a good Octave of Easter. Thank you, Father. God bless. Bye. Thanks for that. Um, I really don't watch too many shows on EWTN other than some of the special liturgical things they have, like when the Holy Father is celebrating Mass. Uh, even then, I prefer to watch the live Internet feed uh, through um, Vatican Television because it doesn't have the voiceover and because my Italian is you know, pretty much flawless and uh, uh, I don't have any problem with the Latin. I could just follow it without any you know commentary over it. I mean, I know what's going on, after all. Uh, but I don't watch too many things on EWTN. Uh, I do uh, pretty pretty often I get Marcus Grody's very, very good show, and uh, I found it, find it edifying and instructive. Uh, I do know uh, Father Pacwa, and I highly respect him, and he's absolutely right that Mass isn't a hootenanny. 
you know that that term hootenanny was used at the time of uh, some of the liturgical reforms very early on they talked about hootenanny masses and uh, i remember monsignor richard schuler the late pastor of saint agnes church in saint paul who was a great expert on sacred music and one of the real warriors trying to keep um, the reform of the liturgy according to the actual documents that the church put out he used to talk about how they fought and fought and fought and fought among the the uh, liturgists and musicians in the united states against this concept of the hootenanny masses that was called back then that was of course the where they were dragging uh modern forms in uh to replace uh the great treasury of sacred music and of course it changed the entire attitude about it which is really what they were aiming at they were trying to say matter of fact there was a draft uh there was a draft proposed by an advisory committee to the bishops committee on liturgy of the conference of bishops and say how far that is from being really authoritative but in this in this uh, advisory board's letter it said that the purpose of sacred music uh, in the liturgy was to produce a truly human experience which of course is absolutely wrong it's not to produce a human experience it's supposed to uh, help you have an experience or an encounter of mystery that's what mass is all about and sacred music is pars integrans in the liturgy an integrating part or an integral part of the liturgy it can't be separated from the sacred mysteries that they're celebrating so the the music too not just the sacred texts but also the music has to promote mystery an encounter with mystery awe at transcendence rather than jumping around in distraction maybe even sweating uh, in regard to the eastern christians uh, they've preserved uh, a liturgy all this time that maintains its focus on the transcendent and so i hope that uh, both their example and summorum pontificum uh, which has impressed a lot of eastern christians I hope that uh, we of the Roman Rite will begin to recover the dedication that the Easterners had to make every Mass focused on the Divine Mysteries, and just as we always did, too, but we lost track of. And I think the celebrations of the Older Mass will help to draw celebrations of the Novus Ordo back on track when they've gone astray, and that the older form will exert what I call that gravitational pull on the newer form of Mass. I think it's also really important to begin moving back, uh, I think with even greater speed now, back to celebration of Mass ad orientem, where everyone is turned toward the liturgical east on the same side of the altar. That whole facing each other across the altar thing is just bad. And it seems to me that the loss of dignity and turning of congregations in on themselves and the devolution of mass into entertainment and the priest as you know game show host was greatly accelerated by turning the altars around and once you do that then everything is going to change it's all like a domino effect it's going to affect music it's going to affect decorum it's going to affect the way people dress it's going to 
uh, change the way priests preach their homilies. It's going to change everything. I think we need that return to ad orientem worship. We need to recover the treasury of sacred music. And we need the gravitational pull that the older form of Mass will exert on celebrations of the newer Mass, and especially the attitude and understanding that younger priests have about who they are as priests and what Holy Mass is. Restless as a willow in a windstorm. I'm as jumpy as a puppet on a string. I'd say that I had spring fever, but I know it isn't spring. I am starry eyed and Vaguely discontented Like a nightingale Without a song to sing Oh, why should I have spring fever When it isn't even spring I'm always so glad to get your voicemail. Um, if you have Skype, it's really easy for you to leave a voicemail for me. Just uh, look for my Skype address at WDTPRF, that's Whiskey Delta Tango, Papa Romeo Sierra, just like the blog address. You put a dot com at the end. What does the prayer really say? Uh, remember, if you call, um, I'm probably not going to answer. Uh, as a matter of fact, I won't answer. Uh, this is only for voicemail, but I do um, I do uh, listen to the voicemails, and I'm I think I've made it pretty easy for you to get a hold of me, not only with Skype but also with two phone numbers, one in the USA and one in the UK. The United States phone number is six five one three one four forty five fifty four, and the UK number zero two zero eight one two three one five four five. Uh, you dial those, and it goes straight into my into my voicemail. And uh, with that, I'm going to sign off on this last day of March, which is the feast of the Annunciation, and uh, last day of March. Wouldn't you know it? Uh, there's something like a blizzard going on outside, even as I make this podcast here. I sometimes was wondering if you could hear the the snow and kind of sleet hammering against the window in the room where I'm sitting. Uh, when I was growing up, there was always a terrible snowstorm around the time of the boys' high school basketball tournament in the state of Minnesota. And, well, it's about that time of year here in the upper Midwest. And uh, I'm sure ready to have this winter be over, though, and so we can move into a wonderful spring. So thanks for listening. Visit us at the blog, a blog which, by the way, won all sorts of awards in the 2008 
Catholic Blog Awards, including the best overall Catholic blog. You have done me a great honor, but uh, I have to say that you are really the ones to help shape the blog if you participate and make it what it is. So I, in a sense, share these awards with all of you who uh, actively participate in the blog and all you other good bloggers out there too. So we're, we are creating something different, uh, something new, and it's important that we all support each other and build something up that's strong and can be a positive force uh, for change and to help people uh, the last thing that we should do is see all of this as a as a competition. Even though a little competition is kind of fun, really we need to work on this all together, supporting each other. So thank you very much for everything that you've done for WDTPRS. And this is Father Z signing off. Please pray for me as I will for you. It might as well be spring.